You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Star Trek Wines. Visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Risen varietals, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion. This episode is also brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 475, Tuvix. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, searching for the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein, and seeing if it withstands the test of time. This week, Tuvix, the one where a transporter accident changes the fate for not only Tuvok and Neelix, but perhaps the very conversation within the Star Trek community for all time. John will have trivia for you in a moment, but first, here is how all of you can stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. We will have John's trivia in a moment, but first, a word from one of our sponsors this week, Star Trek Wines. You know, Norman, we're so glad to have uh, a partnership with Star Trek Wines, and uh, we've talked about how we love the Picard series, that three-pack and the, the 22-21 that I really like. We've talked about the Ryzen Wines and how they're so dedicated to the accuracy of those bottles matching what you've seen on screen. Some mm-hmm. of the ones that we haven't given as much attention to, though— I love, I mean, I think the first one we really fell in love with was that Canar bottle. You know, talk about something that looks like it is pulled right off the set of Quark's Bar and mm. has such a, a nice, complex flavor as well. So they did not skimp on the wine at all. And then another maybe unsung hero there, Klingon blood wine. Talk about, <laughs> talk yeah. about a spicy, complex wine that really lends itself to either you know snacking, maybe you've got a cheese board, a lot of charcuterie or something, and you want something to go with it. I definitely would reach for that Klingon blood wine. I'm glad you brought that up because now I think a lot of people in their head canon are trying to figure out, okay, exactly what would be on Martok's charcuterie? Ooh, yeah, that is a good question. Send in your right. comments now. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good one. But you're absolutely right, John. And I think what makes Star Trek wine so unique, they're crossing this wonderful uh, threshold of product and product design. And when you're done like imbibing on and consuming and enjoying these wonderful wines, what's left behind? These wonderful bottles that you can add to your collection and you can uh, decorate it as we all want to and create your own little 10 forward in your own bar or wherever you display your bottles. So do yourself a favor, visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Rise and Varietals, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion. And now here's John with this week's trivia. 
All right. Thank you for that, Norman. Now, for Tuvix, we have a story by Andrew Shepard Price and Mark Gaberman. Now, those are new names for us on Star Trek, and uh, not the last time that we will see them. They're credited together on each of the five episodes of Voyager on which they worked, and they also share credits on Jeopardy as writer-producers. So the next time you're watching that and you see a Star Trek question pop up, probably know who was responsible. Andrew, in fact, got his first gig writing on another TV game show. That would be MTV's Remote Control, which definitely was on a lot in my house in the 80s. <laughs> we have a teleplay by Kenneth Biller, and here's where things really took a turn. That original pitch uh, was much lighter in tone. In fact, it was played much more for laughs, but it was Ken Biller who did the page one rewrite, and he relied on Michael Piller and Brandon Braga as sounding boards to really find the drama. And you might be asking if the ending was always the one that had been in the draft, and the answer is no. There was a version in which Tuvix sacrifices himself, but Ken and the others on the staff agreed that they needed to show the hard decision and went that way instead. It was directed by Cliff Bull, and we're approaching the midway point for Cliff's contributions to Voyager. The last one of his that we discussed was another character drama, Life Signs, and we will see Cliff's name in the credits six more times on the series before he jumps over to Enterprise. Let's meet our guest stars. We get to say welcome back to Simon Billig as Hogan. And the real star of our show this week is a newcomer to Star Trek, Tom Wright, in the title role. Tom is from New Jersey, and like a lot of Star Trek actors, he had an extensive background in live theater for him in Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and elsewhere. His first filmed roles were in smaller budget projects in the 1970s, and he has worked extensively in feature films ever since. He was in a segment of Creepshow 2, Murder at 1600, and Barbershop and Barbershop 2, to name a few. And those are just a very few because his TV roles are numerous. The man has nearly 200 credits in total. You may have caught him on Seinfeld, L.A. Law, A Man Called Hawk, of course, alongside Cisco himself, Avery Brooks. Coincidentally, Tom was also up for the role of Benjamin Cisco. Tom only has two Trek credits. We will catch him again on Enterprise. And it's interesting to note that before getting this role, he wasn't familiar specifically with Voyager. He was, however, familiar with both Ethan Phillips and Tim Russ, and he auditioned with aspects of both in mind. Tim and Tom had been up for the same role on other projects before, and Tom and Ethan had worked together in theater. And once he got the role, the production, of course, sent him tapes to study performances by his two colleagues. And that is how he brought Tuvix to life. Prepare yourself for the Star Trek version of those commercials explaining the origins of peanut butter cops. Prologue. Detecting a flower that can be used for food, Captain Janeway dispatches Neelix and Tuvok to take a look on a nearby planet. The two rib each other in their good-natured way, Neelix, the jovial one, and Tuvok, the irritated, logical one. When it's time to beam back to Voyager, though, there's a problem. Where the two should have appeared on the transporter pad, only one is there, and he's neither Tuvok nor Neelix, 
but somehow both. Act 1. The stranger is examined in sickbay, where the EMH determines that he is both Tuvok and Neelix, merged on a molecular level and expressing some of the physical characteristics of both. He's got his father's ears and his other father's eyes, for starters. What's more, there are traces of the plant DNA that Tuvok and Neelix had picked up as samples. If that's related to the transporter fusion of the two men, Janeway will now dispatch a shuttle to the planet to collect more specimens. The stranger now undergoes more tests administered by Kess. She's cautiously curious around him, especially as he suggests that he knows everyone on board as friends and family, yet he's unfamiliar to her. He has a single consciousness, but the memories of both. It's Kess's suggestion that he choose a name for himself, and while Nevok doesn't sound right, Tuvix seems to fit. Kess approves, and Tuvix says thank you, sweeting, which is a kind of familiarity that makes Kess uneasy. Act 2. A day has gone by, and the EMH has been working on the situation, but with little progress. Tuvix is doing quite all right, though. He's full of energy and motivation, and honestly, he could take on the duties of both men, offering at first to resume Tuvok's duties on the bridge. First, he attends a meeting in the conference room where his mere existence is still a mystery. Nobody seems to know quite what happened, but Tuvix thinks he has a lead, the flowers. They reproduce with a process of symbiogenesis, literally merging with another in order to propagate the species. If the plant DNA was part of the beam-up, it could have acted that way on Tuvok and Neelix's genetic codes. That being the only theory they have to go on, Janeway will send Paris to collect more plant samples in the morning. Later, in a corridor, Cass bumps into Tuvix, and he offers to cook her dinner, as did Neelix. She's hesitant at first, but they make their way to the mess hall, where it's utter chaos— Tuvix goes into action, kicking everyone out of the kitchen so he can bring order to the cooking. After dinner, Cass helps Tuvix clean up. It's friendly and then turns more personal when he touches her hands and says that he knows he's not Neelix, but he also knows that Neelix would be lost without her. Cass can't quite process the moment and excuses herself from the room. Act 3. The next morning... Tuvix is up bright and early, very early, to work on some projects that Tuvok hadn't finished, much to the surprise of Janeway and Chakotay. On the planet surface below, Milana and Tom Paris carry out an experiment. Two control species are beamed up with one of the local symbiogenic species. After the transport, that results in a third new species, and the doctor is unable to unmix the discrete DNA of the donor species. It's as if trying to unbake a cake, to use Tuvix's analogy. It may be impossible to separate Tuvok and Neelix, but the doctor will continue to work on a solution. He admits that he feels like he's lost two members of the crew. The news hits Kess hard. She is in her quarters, in a ritual prayer for the loss of Tuvok and Neelix, when she is visited by Tuvix. It's an awkward conversation. He remembers everything about Neelix's love for Kess, but she's faced here with a stranger she hardly knows. And what of Tuvok's wife? It's complicated at best, but Tuvix assures Kess 
that he'll be here if she needs him, and he kisses her on the cheek before exiting, which leaves Kest to grapple with the enormity of her mixed emotions. Act 4. Unable to sleep, Kess visits Janeway's quarters, and the captain is also awake and distracted. Kess is at odds with her feelings. Still in mourning over losing Neelix and uncomfortable with Tuvix's expressed love for her, Janeway commiserates by saying that the loss is similar to what the whole crew has gone through, feeling optimistic that they will see their loved ones again versus giving up and resigning themselves to being stuck in the Delta Quadrant forever. There's no right answer how to feel, but Janeway encourages Kess to give herself some time. As more time goes by, Tuvix has integrated himself into the crew, settling in and performing all the duties expected of him, even besting Neelix in the kitchen. He's just as much an advisor to the captain, and he has kept a respectful distance from Kess while she works through her emotions. The EMH hasn't been sleeping on the problem, though. He confers with Harry Kim about a theory. The medical transporter could lock onto a radioisotope attached to specific DNA. Maybe they could work on this? Meanwhile, Tuvix is unwinding in the holodeck at Chez Sandrine, hustling Chakotay at pool. In walks Kess, who wants to have a chat. They're both up front with their emotions. Good days and bad days have hit them both, but now Kess says she wants to be friends, and maybe that friendship will grow. She clutches his hands, just as a call from the EMH comes through requesting Tuvix in sickbay. There, the theory is laid out. The isotope would allow the transporter to simply beam out the separate DNA of both Neelix and Tuvok. It's safe, and has already been tested on the flower species. It's good news for everyone. Janeway is pleased. Kess is pleased. Except for Tuvix, who says he doesn't want to die. Act 5. Alone with Chakotay, Janeway expresses her hesitation about separating Tuvix. Now that time has passed, he has taken on a life of his own, and he can't just be seen as a transporter accident. Tuvix arrives, and Chakotay is dismissed. Janeway now challenges Tuvix's will to stay by saying that Tuvok and Neelix aren't there to defend themselves, that they have friends and family, they have a right to live. Bringing them back, though, means ending Tuvix's life, an execution of sorts. And doesn't he have a right to live? Isn't he a person now, part of the crew? Tuvix stops by the mess hall to see Kess. He confides in her that Janeway might force him to go through the transporter, but maybe she can advocate for him. When Kess visits Janeway, she can't do it. She breaks down in tears because she wants Neelix back. Later, on the bridge, Tuvix is met somewhat coldly by his crewmates. Then a determined Janeway interrupts them. She calmly, forcefully orders him to report to sickbay over his impassioned protest. Security is called, but he relents and silently walks with Janeway to sickbay. Even the EMH refuses to go ahead with the procedure, but Janeway merely goes around him, administering the radioisotope herself. She activates the medical transporter, and Tuvix looks on helplessly. After a few seconds, the transporter completes its task, and where Tuvix once sat, Tuvok and Neelix now appear. Emotionless, Janeway tells them it's good to have them back, then exits sickbay and stands, staring blankly, before moving on. The End
That was uh, no easy feat, getting the recap that concise with being able to almost kind of like compact that much drama, like what was going on in this episode, John. Well, you know what you're doing? You're really just, you're taking the, the two, you know, the multiple major pieces of the drama, just squeezing them together into one and then see if you could just force those apart later in the show. You know, that's really what it took. It just took my, my forceful determination to separate those plot elements. And then we're going to add a radioactive isotope into our discussions mm-hmm. and separate those out even more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Against their will. Against, yeah. no, okay. <laughs> or against our will. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I do want to start with something. Like it, just in the teaser alone, like, uh, okay, a, a sci-fi show like this where it is high concept, where you have to buy the concept in order to even just be a part of the process of picking apart a show like this, mm-hmm. you have to just buy the premise right away. And what I liked is, okay, you have to have a difficult, unlikely situation anyway, which is get Neelix and Tuvok away on an away mission. <laughs> you know? Like, why would that be a thing? But it's so simple. It's so logical in a piece of dialogue. We found a flower that might be a source of nutrition. Perfect. Yeah. Send these two. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's just, it's clean. It's a clean way to open. I like that they make mention of the fact that their personalities are kind of like at the most extreme version of their personalities. Yeah. And you have to think, like, yeah, that's a point that needs to be made because of what's going to happen shortly after. Right, right. But, but again, it, it's like sometimes these shorthands in Star Trek or anywhere, but especially in Star Trek, can feel very clunky. But here it's just like, okay, we're, we're getting that across loud and clear, but it's just enough. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's an interesting thing, though. When, when Harry and Hogan, by the way, Great to see Hogan again. Always great to see oh, Hogan. Hogan. Hogan getting a little yep. bit more screen time. I think that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that Baxter's probably a little jealous, even though he's pumping iron hard. You know, wherever. Yeah. He is. No kidding. No kidding. He's pumping too yeah. much iron. Could be. That molecular imaging scanner that Harry repairs looks like the exact mm-hmm. same place that Seska stole her molecular imaging scanner. So technically, <gasps> oh this <my> entire <laughs> story could have been avoided if Seska didn't steal that. Therefore. All yes. of this is Seska's fault. Yep, I'm good with that. <laughs> totally good with that answer. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I did wonder why is Harry Kim in the transporter room and not Bellana, where, where there's a problem. And I, like, and I swear, even if it's either one of them, nobody ever trusts the transporter chief. I guess not. It just, yeah, just nobody. Like that is your job. But whenever your job gets difficult, we're sending in somebody else entirely. And Harry, just put down the phaser. Just calm down. You're not Worf. <laughs> just put down the phaser, okay? All we needed in that scene was for Garrett to, like, jump the console and catch his foot <laughs> just enough yes. for us to be worried that he was just going to yard sail all over the transporter room, right? Yes, yeah. that would have been awesome. Yeah. When Tuvok – or I should – excuse me, Tuvix. When Tuvix <laughs> – that's going to be difficult. When Tuvix yeah. – uh, appears on the transporter pad. There was something so incredibly perfect about just the entire fusion of him from kind of like the lion lizard hair, you know, to kind of like the cranial yeah. shape. Uh, and then also to kind of like the weird swirling patterns that were going on 
in his uniform. But not just that. It wasn't a standard uniform cut. There was also kind of like the yeah. you know, the silhouette cut of what Neelix would wear with the different uh, panels, like in his yes. wardrobe. Yeah. That was phenomenal. I, I wish we got to see a little bit more of that. I'm sure that's there, there are examples of that online. But when you know, fantastic job by the wardrobe department for that. Yeah, yeah. makeup was great, mm-hmm. and the wardrobe like that. That's one of those things that you just sort of have to buy. Like, why would a genetic problem here change the clothes Mm -hmm. but who cares it looks great yeah (laughs) they really stylistically just knocked that out of the park Mm -hmm. love that scene in sick bay janeway asks tuvix do you recognize everyone and you kind of pan around the room from his pov (laughs) doctor captain Kess, just completely skip the person in the background (laughs) like we're just not even going to acknowledge that there's a person there well we didn't recognize Um, them either so (laughs) no i know I know. So it just tells you, look, I'm on the same page as you, audience. Don't worry. Don't recognize that person either. And and by the way, that initial test where Kaz says, you know, okay, keep still here with, you know, your hand in the air for 20 minutes. Like, really? Could you just give him an armrest? (laughs) She just lay his arm on a desk or anything? That was a little awkward. Well, not only was there that one one unnamed science officer but there was another mm-hmm. unnamed science officer. there were two literally unnamed science officers like in, mm-hmm. in, in the span of this scene which was strange i mean it's nice to see like you know everything being populated now on voyager like people in the hallways and people in you know the infirmary but you don't even have to see th- yeah. i don't think you get to see their faces you just see them from behind and they're wearing yeah science yeah. uniforms not much yeah. of them at all yeah. I, I do have to say, you know, Bob Picardo just always a star player no matter what. And how perfect that the EMH, I don't know if this was initially in the script like this or a decision that came later, how perfect for the EMH to talk about Tuvix to Captain Janeway as if he's not in the room. Yeah. <laughs> just by saying he possesses Tuvok's irritating sense of intellectual superiority and Neelix's annoying ebullience. Like he's right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Just peak doctor, of course. There's also like a little bit more of a serious note to say about that, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. Nevok yeah. was – I don't think it was that bad of a name. And and, and no. maybe no. it would have helped me, I don't know, separate that character from being Tuvok and Neelix. But Tuvix was mm. far more, I think, of an anchor keeping Tuvok and Neelix alive kind of like in that public conscious space. Mm. Right? Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 By the way, now what I want to see, I want to see two cosplayers doing this uniform and this makeup look, and one can be Nevok and one can be Tuvix if they ever run into each other. I think that would be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Do you love that line in the uh, the conference room? Sex. I beg your pardon. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how many times have I been interrupted like that in real life? Yeah. You know. I see that meme now, like Wes. He's like, we're Starfleet. We don't sex. Right. Yeah. I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. (laughs) I mean, I I know that this scene is is played for laughs, you know, in the mess hall. Mm -hmm. But are you telling me that not a single Starfleet officer in that room can cook a meal without burning something to death? Yeah. I mean, I mean, and Hogan right in the middle of it. I mean, dude, come on. Not only are you like fouling up the transporter room, but now you're fouling up the mess hall. (laughs) Uh, Where's Baxter? Uh, I, I do love the detail, though, of when, when Tuvix creates uh, or, or cooks the crepes, like Kess's special crepes, mm-hmm. right? I like that he reduced the amount of spices in the crepes, as Kess said, because Tuvok yeah. is not a fan of spicy foods. 
Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm like I, all the, the little character yeah. details. They they very nailed smart. them, you know. And in an episode where there are so many little details, I love this great subtle moment of Tuvix putting his hand on Kess's shoulder in the conference mm-hmm. room. We don't linger on that at all, but it, it's there just long enough to get that there is a reaction from Kess, and we don't know exactly what that reaction is because it's just this confusion, discomfort. it's great and there's so many moments like that I'm sure that we'll get to more another great little detail that moment of Tuvix working from a hunch yes yes Yes, because it is the perfect callback to someone like Spock taking a guess Mm -hmm. and it it also I feel like it really just drives home that humanistic Star Trek message of all of us needing our logical and emotional sides like Tuvix is better at some things than both Neelix and Tuvok. Yeah. You know? It's like... It's very cool. It's like they're their own, like... This is like a tangent to the enemy within, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though it's not two yeah. different Kirks, like, separated from a transporter accident, but yeah. Tuvok and Neelix being kind of like the extremists of their own personalities fused into one. Yeah. But I think you have a note about that. I might, I might, yeah. And and look, I mean, contradicting that, of course, is Chakotay getting it wrong, saying, well, the whole is never greater than the sum of its parts. Really? (laughs) Like, that that is a very glass-half-empty attitude, because we're seeing it right here. I don't think he got that right. (laughs) Did he get that? Yeah, he got that pretty much wrong. Because very often the whole is greater <laughs> some than of his the parts. Of the parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Janeway referencing Neelix says, I've become so fond of him, I can't imagine what you're going through. Yeah. Like, uh, like, really, Janeway? Because uh, we saw how you looked at him when he said that you just need to make the murderous VR clown laugh uh, about a week ago. Right, the Janeway stare. Know? Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that Starfleet 4, yep. get out. And stay out yeah. of that conference room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. By the way, did you notice this when the EMH calls Harry Kim on the visual comm system? Another very weird use of that camera angle. So think about it. Harry's computer is set low on a table. It's like waist height mm-hmm. with Harry. He walks over to it, and the EMH is looking up as if his POV matches the computer's position on the table. So weird. It's <laughs> so very like, weird. We don't do that with our phones today. We're looking at our phone's camera, and we're not like changing the angle right. of our POV to match the POV of the person that we're on, like say, FaceTime with. Also, I think it's high time. I don't know if it's ever going to change because, you know, the, obviously mm-hmm. the show has been done for like 30 years, but... Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I really wish they would just shorthand like the emergency holographic channel to like channel two, turn to channel two. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good call. Good call. Yeah. And and by the way, all that said, I do know that there are people in our audience and, and other Star Trek fans will say, Oh no, no, no. It's, it's actually a holographic, like it's a 3d camera and this and that, like I get it. It doesn't play that way. (laughs) So I'm glad that, uh, some of you have mentally retconned that to me. It's just, hilarious this is kind of a an an odd artistic choice i have a couple of um acting notes that i just want to um comment on Mm -hmm. so in that moment yeah i call it the judas scene the gethsemane scene you know for for tuvix Mm -hmm. when janeway approaches the the tactical station tuvix turns around almost in this weird kind of hunched over cowardly way like he almost knows what's coming 
right? And that was the only yeah. time where, because he, like Tuvix at the time was very proud. You know, he was very, uh, he, he started, he, he was very like in tune with being on board. You know, he's being accepted by the crew. And then all of a sudden events happen. And then he looks like he's just skulking at that point. And it was very heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, Tom just was marvelous in that scene. Yeah. Another scene uh, at the end when Tuvix uh, was on the bio bed and Janeway and Tuvix just have those final stare. The staring at each other was like very, um, you know, it's like Clint Eastwood, you know, and uh, Lee Van Cleef, you know, and, you mm-hmm. know, in mm-hmm. um, the good, the bad and the ugly, that final scene, you know, just eyes, just the yeah. steeliness of their eyes was incredible. And I know that we're going to get into this later, but I can't help. And I have to make mention of how good Kate is in the final scene where she leaves uh, sick bay. And all she has is just that one last look where she just swallows everything. Right. She just swallows yeah. all of it. The anger, the, the, the frustration, the fear, the despair, and it just washes over her. And she like resets her face and goes back to business. I'm like, how do you do that? So, Norm, you saw that. I don't know if you thought of another captain. Let me remind you of Kirk mm-hmm. in Balance of Terror, who has just been through it with his crew. Remember, we started that episode with what would have been a wedding, mm-hmm. reason for a celebration, and then we lose one of those crewmen. And then at the end, after Kirk is there to console uh, who would have been the bride, walks out of that room devastated down but then you find his change you find him regaining his strength as a commander after going through that emotional moment that that was a parallel that i thought of with janeway Mm -hmm. here and by the way since we are referencing the classics now (laughs) let me let me bring up another that i thought of and i don't know if any of our other listeners thought of this as well but uh, the parallel was very clear to me in those moments of tuvix challenging janeway and really begging for his life, I thought of Shylock from Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. And and I hope, I think, maybe Ken Biller or somebody else must have had that in mind as well. Shylock's monologue famously, hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimension, sense, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? Tuvix might just be the first singular crew member who can split up to cover more ground. Sorry, too soon? Hey, we'll be right back to our discussion of Tuvix after a thanks to you, our supporters on Patreon, who make this show possible. You know, Norman, something that we've talked about very often is how our Patreon has spun off into this Discord community, this you know, private space for our listeners to be able to carry on the conversation, carry on this discussion with us, especially about the heavy, deep, complex topics that, oh, I don't know, might be brought up in an episode of Mission Log. From time to time. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there is that. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have the opportunity to continue those discussions, you know, in our Discord server on Patreon. So, 
if you've ever had that, if you've been listening to us and you ever have that moment where you're like, I really want to tell them this or that. And I'm sure after this particular podcast, <laughs> you may want to. You can always find us on Discord with all of these different channels that we have discussing all of the different fandoms, all of the different mission logs, our live shows, shows about food, shows about music, okay. shows about... I don't know. What else do we have there? Oh, conventions, yes. convention meetups, yeah. and uh, just a general wonderful community of conversation that we have uh, from a community that has been built by you. Yeah. And just about every week, we get together in one of those live chats specifically to talk about the issues that are brought up in that week's episode of Mission Logs. So that would be an ideal place for you to join us, have that conversation with us, and meet some of your fellow Mission Log listeners and make some new friends while you're at it. Speaking of new friends. Big shout out to the people who have joined us there most recently. Oh, let's see. It's a long list. Daddy Bear Cub, Kim, Brett, Holly, Dan, Caitlin, Terry, Nancy, Patrick, Marina. I might be leaving some out, but thank you all for joining us on Patreon, and we hope that we see you in the Mission Log Discord soon. If you would like to join us, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash mission log. Again, that's patreon.com slash mission log, and we thank you for your support. Norman, something that I brought up earlier was uh, about how this is another one of those, like like the Thaw or like some of the other episodes that we've covered here on Voyager, this high concept. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to buy into this concept before you can invest yourself in the emotional or character arcs of the episode. One of the things that we try to do on Mission Log from the very beginning is figure out are there real-world analogs to what's happening in that high concept that we are asked to swallow? Sometimes in Star Trek, those are very obvious and very easy to figure out. Other times, maybe not so much. And in this one, we are asked to swallow a big high-concept premise from the beginning. Two characters are fused into one, and that one happens to carry along memories of both, have some of the same attributes of both, And then we get to watch all of our beloved characters react to that new being. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, this isn't one of those you can create a very clear, very obvious real world analog. But one thing that I did think of is I was thinking about people who go through some kind of profound change. And maybe they've been affected by trauma, maybe incarcerated or or some other way kept away from the people that they know. And then they come back. What, what happens when they return? Think about people who went off to war, continue to go off to war, are severely affected by that experience and then come back and try to restart a relationship or pick up a relationship where they left off. And I wondered, is it selfish or is it only natural that the others around them, they want what they remember in return? Because I, I think that's what's so critical here about thinking about Kess's actions or her state of mind and Janeway's actions. Mm-hmm. Is it selfish to say, well, that's not good enough. I want this other thing that I had before. And, and maybe selfish isn't even the right word. It might just be the natural 
emotional reaction that you have. Like, I don't recognize I'm not connecting with this. So what I long for is this other thing, but that other thing doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that, that's an interesting observation. I actually didn't really see Tuvix this way, but I do now. I mean, mm. When you look at some of, like, say, some of the more uh, the more recent kind of, like, offerings of a character like that, say, you know, um, Homeland, for example, mm. you know, um, the, the character of Brody. You know, he came back from Afghanistan, but he was turned by the Taliban, you know, as uh, maybe, you know, as some may have, or, you know, he has been, you know, traumatized to a point where, you know, his family didn't recognize him anymore, certainly his wife and the person that they knew, mm-hmm. you know, before they left and the person that returned are completely different people. And that can happen. You know, uh, we've said this before, you know, that uh, time experience, um, either for good or ill, you know, either joyous or traumatic can change a person. And if you don't see a person for 10, 15 years, you know, say you've lost track of a friend or, mm-hmm. you know, you've lost track of a colleague or someone that you've loved before in the past and they all of a sudden like return to your life. Their experiences have changed them. Your experiences have changed you. Yeah. But there is that one special moment, that one perfect moment in time that you remember and have preserved. And that's that's something that, you know, both of you maybe are unable to actually return to again. You know, so I think what was interesting about the Tuvix situation is that neither Tuvok nor Neelix died. You know, Tuvix himself was a walking living memorial of both people yeah you know so he's tuvok is still alive neelox is still neelix is still alive (laughs) neelox i'm sorry it'll happen yeah yeah but that's and 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 you can't move forward in a way because you can't put their memories to rest because their memories are still there yeah living and breathing well and and that's where i say that like this is an, an almost impossible thing to try to make a, a real world analog because then you come across something like that where, where you say, okay, well, this is this new being, but those memories are still alive. It, it might have, and easy is the wrong word, but uh, it might have been more clear cut for the crew to move forward if they realize that somebody is dead and gone and not coming back as opposed to this echo of those memories that keep showing up in a different form you, mm-hmm. you know that's why I, honestly it's, it's such a, a great acting challenge for somebody like Jennifer Lean to play this part because how you respond to that is is really unthinkable there's really not a good way to put a pin in that and say oh yeah we would feel exactly this way no it's all it's this mix of things like there's the memory there are the words coming out of this person that sound like the person i knew but it's not that person um i mean i i thought and I, I don't think that in the consciousness the public consciousness of this episode or the the, the conversation that's been had like since you know, mm-hmm. it premiered to now. I don't think that Jennifer Leon has been given enough credit for how good she is in this episode. Well, I, not only you know? how good she is in this episode, but I, I think critically drives the plot. Cr- 
critically drives mm -hmm. Janeway's motivations and the motivations of other people around her. Like, I, I think she's the linchpin of this episode. I really do. Yeah. She's mm -hmm. great. Now, let's kind of back out a little bit and, and take a look at this in kind of the mission log way, the 30,000-foot way, because something that has come up in many other episodes, you know, go all the way back to City on the Edge of Forever. Talk about the trolley problem. And everybody who's listened to any number of Mission Log episodes know that this comes up a lot. And in this case – Should we rephrase it to the Keeler problem? The, the Keeler problem. Oh, I like that. Okay. For Mission Log, so, TM? Yeah. Reserved? All right. So, <laughs> so in that, obviously, so Edith Keeler has to die so that many untold millions more can potentially be saved in a future that is yet to come. But by, by doing that, they are allowing World War II to take place. Millions will die there, but that is a stepping stone to the peaceable future that occurs after that. Or you save Edith Keeler, World War II is delayed, and many more millions of people die in the future because she was saved. It prevented America's entry. Blah, blah, blah. Go back and watch the episode. Mm -hmm. In this case, okay, we have uh, a much more localized problem. Do you, by inaction, allow two people to die? Or by action, kill one? And to complicate things, that, that becomes part of the, the trolley problem issue. How do you factor in your emotional involvement with either? So in the in the trolley problem question, it was like, okay, by by my action, do I switch a train to make it only kill one person instead of ten? Okay, but what if the one person is somebody I know? What if it's a brother, mm -hmm. a sister, a child, a parent, whatever, you know? So we change the stakes either way, and we decide, okay, well, if it's not the needs of the many who outweigh the needs of the few in this case because I'm emotionally attached to the other one. It is an yeah. impossible yeah. problem. It is an impossible yeah. question to answer, which ultimately brings us to, did Janeway do the right thing? <laughs> You know, that's, that's I think, in, in my experience with this episode, mm. um, and, and when I say that, meaning the, the analysis of the conversation that has been um, part of the Star Trek fabric mm. for 25 years, I don't want this, and I don't think it should be a right or a wrong thing. This is the decision that makes you a captain. A lot of people say, like, I can be a captain. I can make the decisions of a captain. But can you, though? Think about what Janeway really has to do here. She has to make a decision based on her own personal needs, the needs of the crew, the needs of the many, or the few, or the one. And she has to, the most important thing, she has to live with that decision for the rest of her days. And if she chooses Tuvix, she sees the phantoms of Tuvok and Neelix for the rest of her days. If she chooses Tuvok and Neelix, she still sees the phantom of Tuvix for the rest of her days. Can any of you out there that want to be a captain, can any of you say that, yes, I will be able to live with that for the remainder of my days? That, I think, is the central part of the analysis of this discussion. Can you do that? And if you can, are you willing to make that decision 
because that's what is required of the captain. Okay, see, I'm so right. glad you answered it that way because I I don't want this episode to be a question of was it the right decision, was it the wrong decision. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. What is this episode about? Well, in the end, it's about the captain's prerogative to make the hard decision, even if there's no right answer. Okay, but right. but you just said something very interesting in there with which is can you live with it <laughs> can mm-hmm. Janeway live with it and then I picture I'm changing I'm flipping the script a little bit and it's Janeway sitting there late at night looking into the camera of her video uh, video log saying mm-hmm. I can live with it that's right, so yes. are, okay okay so are yes. you okay with that yeah well it's I don't it's yeah I have made my I can't I can't backpedal and say that sure I'm on board with Cisco saying that and in the pale moonlight because mm. I didn't I'm completely against what he said yeah. you know because it's not what he said it's how he erased yeah. that log fair right fair. now if yeah. Janeway did the exact same thing and she erased the log I'd have a problem with that as well no she she owned that moment right yeah. she owned that moment not only as the captain but as the actress so and by the way, she Cable did it in group. front of multiple members of her crew. So if anybody right. wants to take her up on charges, they could. <laughs> yeah, they could. Yeah. They could, uh, especially the doctor, you know, who uh, by by nature of his Hippocratic oath refused to do the, pr- the procedure. But all of these details aside, mm. at the end of the day, Captain Janu is going to have to stare at her ceiling for the remainder of her years mm-hmm. when she's asleep and question, did I do the right thing? Mm-hmm. Right, it's it goes all the way back to Kirk and Savick in the in the uh, um, you know in the uh, turbo lift, and Kirk saying it's not a question of right or wrong; it's a question of character. Do you have the character to live with that decision for the rest of your life, mm. and how is that decision going to inform you as a leader for the rest of your life? Because it's not the only time you're going to have to make that decision. Yeah, this is just one of many of these decisions that a captain is going to have to make and also is going to have to harbor within their own soul and have that weigh on them until it doesn't anymore. Right? Yeah. So. Just think, during downtime in the mess hall, Tuvix could have sung duets with himself. Sorry, way too soon. Well, I hope everyone out there takes a deep breath, and I hope everyone out there is calm and collected and just the way that John and I are right now. <laughs> after a, <laughs> actually, actually, after a very fantastic discussion of this episode, and as we do here on Mission Log, um, the way we wrap up our show, if this is the first time you have listened to us, and well, if it is, congratulations on starting with Tuvix, <laughs> but we ask ourselves, does this episode hold up? And then we ask ourselves, do they have, or does this episode have any morals, messages, or meanings that we have learned from what we've watched? And I can tell you, uh, if we had two more hours, or if you could listen to us for two more hours, we would probably take it. But since we don't, we have to be a little bit more concise and focused, but we do have many things to say. And I'd like to start with you, John. Let's start with, does this episode hold up for you? Well, you know, Norm, I'm of two minds about this episode. Well done. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I am of singular mind when I say that this episode cannot help but hold up. 
Like it, it, it works as an episode when you take it out of context, but when the, then when you put it into context of the journey that is Voyager, but also the Star Trek fandom that analyzes and discusses and debates episodes of Star Trek, this is one that's going to come right to the top. It is one of the most provocative and talked about and discussed and debated episodes of Star Trek ever made, and for good reason. You mentioned it earlier. This is kind of the reverse of The Enemy Within, but it is also an entirely different thing at the end of the day. You know, Enemy Within, you've got Kirk deciding that he needs to be reunified to be himself. This, you have the opposite of that. And really, what we're discussing here is a command decision about this, again, high concept premise that is thrown at us, not the personal decision to do what uh, what happens in this episode. And I think what is what we already established in the last segment, and I think what's important here is that there is no right answer, partly because we're in this incomprehensible fictitious construct <laughs> you know but but what we can really do is we can sit here and debate and discuss the effects and motivations of the other characters on the show that that's where this is crucial and that's where honestly a good tv guest star in a well-written role gets to come in and do their thing and you don't need that person back next week but what you're left with is a residual effect of them on the other characters it's about their growth and their journey this is a little maybe too inside baseball for people who follow Mission Log, but this is absolutely one of those episodes where it's so crucial that I just stay away from other people's comments and criticism or spoilers before we record. And I know that I've seen this episode before, but I didn't remember specific details. I didn't remember specific moments or specific dialogue, and I needed to come at this fresh because honestly this is that episode that has just become you know the launch of a thousand memes which is fine that it's taken on a life of its own but i really needed to come at this fresh because i think you need to analyze this without kind of all the the joking and clever takes you need to really watch it for the acting and for the story that they're telling i i honestly i had to absorb my shock <laughs> at what happened in the final act i really had to take it but then i had to go back and watch it again and again and again to really try to track all those motivations and all those moments that got us to where we landed and i honestly don't know if i will ever be able to fully square and understand all the motivations on janeway's part to carry out what she did but if we are doing an analysis of a commander making the hard decision, that's what we got here. I, you know, I, I don't want the memification of this episode to take away from the subtlety and depth of the performances. And especially here, I got to call out, well, Kate, obviously, but Jennifer Lean. You know, we, we said it before. She's mm -hmm. just so strong and so, so empathetic. And wonderfully accessible in this role and in this episode in particular. Here's what I needed. I needed one more exchange from Tuvix. I, I needed one more bit of understanding from his logical side 
or honestly from the side that loves Cass, that he understands going back to who he was. He he didn't need to like it. (laughs) He, He could still protest it. But I needed to register that he understood it. Or or maybe I just needed another moment with Janeway to kind of register that concern. But maybe that would have been too much. Like it was a really clever bit of editing that we cut from the bridge to Janeway alone in her ready room. And then getting up and just grabbing Tuvix and doing this. You know, this is one of those episodes where you can tell just every scene is a series of decisions to try to get to tell the best, most dramatic possible story it's almost as if in that scene when she stood up from the far corner of her yeah, of her couch in her ready room mm-hmm. that yeah. it was perfect because it was as far away from yeah. the action you know panning from right to left and into the bridge but the decision has been made and you can tell with every single expression yeah that she can't sway from this decision or else all would it would just fall apart her entire world would just yeah. fall apart if she didn't yeah. stay the course she had to but see then then right. it's a moment like that that makes me go back to her motivations what are those factors that swayed her motivations more to one side than the other it, is it really that she is that sympathetic to kess's plight because those scenes with her and kess are great is it what she's going through by missing tuvok you know it's it's kind of a throwaway moment where she talks about reading those letters from Tuvok, but she misses him. She profoundly misses him. See, I don't think that was a throwaway moment well, at all. I thought that was very it, profound. No, it is a profound moment, you but it, that happens yeah. just at the top of a scene where we get deeper into what's going on in Kess's head. You know? Definitely can yeah. be overlooked if yeah, you're not yeah. looking for it. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. And, it, you know, we really didn't even touch on it, but that scene on the bridge where everybody's ignoring Tuvik's uh, it, it's it makes you wonder what is what is the rest of the bridge crew's response and responsibility to the captain at this point? Does anybody dare raise their objections? Um, I feel like it's another unexplored moment, <laughs> you know. But you know, all of this, all of this stuff makes me wonder what aspects of Voyager they were trying to either drive home and enhance or maybe even a race with some of these moments you know were they trying to make janeway more of a hard ass who will make tough decisions because we've certainly gotten that out of her were they trying to maybe undo some of that sense of family and closeness that this crew has had up until now you know everything is purposeful that happens here sometimes they have unintended effects <laughs> but but that's what i was asking myself when i was watching especially a moment like that where the bridge crew is so detached you know and uncomfortable there yeah, yeah. so i i'm not always sure what they're trying to do with certain decisions or some of those decisions like i said had unintended effects but but this episode as a whole it is just so brilliantly provocative and it is wonderfully acted and my god tom wright is just incredible please someone anyone who hears this bring him back to star trek somehow somewhere because he's great but like a lot of voyager yeah i want to know the next part of the story i want to know what happens with tuvok and neelix now possessing some of each other's shared experience 
uh, as Tuvix? How will this affect them in the future? But also, how does this affect other people in the crew who then got to know Tuvix and had to watch what their captain did? Like, we ended at the most dramatic possible moment, and now I have many more questions. That said, questions on all, nitpicks and all, this is so brilliantly executed, pun recognized, though not intended, um, that it cannot <laughs> help but hold up. Uh, so, Norman, that was my rant. Positive rant. Yeah. How about yours? Oh, I mean, this is this is Star Trek at its best when Star mm-hmm. Trek takes this entire aspect of uh, creating something that's thought-provoking and controversial and powerful in every aspect of the production of a single episode. Uh, It's timeless because, you know, the subject of what we're talking about here is the right to life. You know, it's something that is, I think, in Star Trek has been touched upon a multitude of times in different forms. And I think in this form is probably one of the most memorable, if not one of the most controversial. I mean, regardless of how you fall or who you side with morally in this episode, Mm -hmm. why I think that this is probably one of Voyager's finest moments to date as an episode is because it didn't veer off from directing the audience to its inevitable conclusion. It stayed on course with Tuvix's, his pain and the, uh, how we felt about it in the moment, how we felt about our own maybe personal feelings, maybe our own personal shame, maybe not understanding why Janeway decided to, to make that very hard decision at the end because we feel, we, we empathize with the desperation that Tuvix is feeling on the bridge probably the single most powerful moment I think in the episode where he really understood that he never actually really mattered to anyone so that he was heartbreaking that that is just an utterly heartbreaking moment yeah it is no one was an advocate Mm. for him no one stood up for him and I think that in the back of our minds and I'm not gonna I don't want to speak for everyone at least in the back of my mind when that scene happened it, it it contradicted what Janeway said about when did Tuvix become a person because he actually never really did. Yeah. If he did, then somebody maybe would have stood up for him and his right to life. So because of that, because it didn't veer off, because it stayed and and forced us to recognize that particular moment or several moments in this episode, I really applaud the conviction of the story to drive us into these very deep emotional moments, um, cathartic for some, you know, maybe controversial for others. That's why I think this episode deserves our respect, you know, collectively as the mm. fandom. Uh, Tom Wright cannot be praised more yeah. in this episode. Yeah. I don't know his body of work. I didn't know it before we came into this, but being able to not only channel Tuvok and Neelix, but also channel Tim and Ethan as those characters. That's something exceptional. That is incredibly special. And I think that to Tom's credit, very cognizant of understanding his contemporaries, his colleagues, and what they have brought to the episode or the series thus far. He knew, he knew the assignment. 
He read the room, knew mm-hmm. the assignment, and just performed something that is indelible, I think, to the history of this franchise. It's rare to see someone that good in a performance that is so singular, not only in its uh, in its execution, pardon yeah. the pun, <laughs> but also in its and also in its existence, because we won't see Tuvix again, as far as I know. Yeah. So there are certain actors that are destined to play certain characters. This was his. And I think that we're all fortunate to have been a part of that particular moment in Star Trek history. I thought it was amazing that they actually brought Kess and Janeway together in these emotional scenes again, because ever since the beginning, since Caretaker, Janeway has always been this, uh, you know, this mentor for Kess. But in this case, and I think you've alluded to this, John, was it Kess's plea for Neelix that actually shifted Janeway's position? That, that's the thing that I will always come back to when I think about this episode. They have so mm-hmm. many strong moments together, Janeway and Kess, that it it feels like it almost feels like a parent going to this extreme heroic effort to right the wrong. Even if by righting the wrong, you are committing a wrong um, to protect this person that she cares about. I I think that is like the emotional heart of this. And I will always ask if that is the singular or at least the most powerful motivation there for Janeway. And, And part of that relies on us as the audience totally believing in Kess's emotional reality throughout the episode. I mean, Janeway, as a seasoned Starfleet officer, understands maybe the loss of a crewman. Mm-hmm. She has lost many already on Voyager, but this is Tuvok. Tuvok is someone special, and that's already been established, you know, and, and well established in the series. But now Cass has lost the one person you know, in her life that made sense of her world. So I thought it was very smart that these two were brought together to talk about not only the relationships they had with these two men, but in a way that they were so profound in a spiritual aspect, not necessarily even just the companionship of these two men Mm -hmm. and what that means with their losses, as opposed to one significant gain within Tuvix himself adds to the complexity of weighing that argument. So without again, extending my feelings about (laughs) this for another two hours, (laughs) I think that if for anything, yes, it does hold up. Does it stand the test of time? Yes. But I'm going to say this on record. I think this is one of Star Trek's finest moments as an episode. Well said. Well said. Okay. Well, what we do, of course, is we come to the end of an episode and we try to mine it for a moral meaning message. I still can't say that this is one of those that has a you see Timmy moment, <laughs> but this is a brilliant piece of high concept sci-fi mind bleepery. And the premise is almost impossible to truly identify with, except that the emotional reality of the characters is so brilliantly played that we can't help but be a part of it. And I feel like there's one moment that really drives us home. You know, again, that that superb scene when Kess visits Janeway's quarters and the captain says this, you're experiencing what people in this crew have been going through since we first got stranded in this quadrant. Do we accept that we are separated from our loved ones forever? Or do we hold on to the hope that someday we'll be with them again? Take those last two questions, those last two sentences, 
separate that from the Delta Quadrant, separate that from the sci-fi concept here. And that is the thing that people do face all the time. Do you accept loss? Do you, do you accept that? Or are you in a position where you hold on to that hope, even if that hope seems pointless? The emotional heart of this episode reveals something that's, well, it's impossible to logic one's way out of. So I said there, there's not a there's not a right answer to this. It, it's simply that the emotional power of what's going on here, particularly love, particularly Kess's love for Neelix and this this heartbreak that she's experiencing, and and to another degree, Janeway's heartbreak and everybody else's heartbreak at losing these two. Their love is strong, and sometimes our wants have more to do with emotion than logic. The heartbreak with Cass is so real. She wants someone she loves back, and she cannot give up that hope. She can't give up the hope that Janeway is talking about in that question that she poses to her. So in this case, do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? Well, the needs of the many could be looked at as the Voyager crew as a whole. It could be looked at as the two, Tuvok and Neelix, as opposed to the one. Or you could ask, do the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the few uh, of the many? And the needs of the one, in this case, might be Kess. Another interesting point uh, in that equation, like, what if Tuvix was the one who could have gotten them back home? Ooh. Yeah. I never really asked yeah. that question, you know, with his ability to solve problems, the hunch, the emotional yeah. ability to be able to weigh logic and problem solving the way that he did on the bridge earlier. Yeah. So, again, that's just something that we can spend yeah. a little bit more time on. But so this for me, this has always been the Kobayashi Maru scenario in Extremis. You know, we're, and here's the interesting thing. I've been tracking this for like the last couple episodes. So we're face to face again with another episode defining a life form and the right to live. Mm -hmm. So add this to data in the measure of a man, uh, the doctor in several of his episodes already, uh, the clown of fear, you know, in the thaw that mm -hmm. we just covered. And now Tuvix, who for all intents and purposes defines every element of the the analysis of, of a, analysis of a life form, a sentient life form. He has agency over his own decisions. He understands complex situations, specifically his right to live and his decision to yeah. do so, just like all of the others mentioned before, especially, say, in Measure of a Man, where the uh, that summary judgment defined what is life in Starfleet, at least according to data. So if Tuvix is indeed a new type of sentient life form, then Janeway's decision at the end was totalitarianism in practice mm. since Tuvix's life was forfeit without trial and without an advocate for representation. Even Data had a representative. Yeah. yeah. You know, he had Picard. Yeah. So I know this is going to probably uh, ignite a few opinions, <laughs> uh, but... Tuvix proclaimed his death would be an execution. And this is where I take exception to what Janeway did, her decision. Not because she did it. Mm. It's because she circumvented Starfleet due process and did not give Tuvix his day in court to plead his case. And no one did on the bridge as well. Let's just point mm -hmm. that out. Yeah. You know, in that scene, there was no immediacy. There was no immediacy to Janeway's decision. There was no ticking clock. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Harry or the doctor or anyone could have been his advocate. If the doctor didn't believe Tuvix was a life form, then why did he take the Hippocratic stance of morality at the end? Mm-hmm. Right? Because the doctor believes Tuvix is a life form to which he has sworn to do no harm. Yeah. So Janeway could have heard these arguments in court. Tuvix's plea and his right to live could have been advocated. And then, based on her decision, she could have rendered a summary judgment. At least he would have had his day. But she didn't. And to me, that isn't the Starfleet way, as she is so forthright to uphold ever since Caretaker. But as we said, like Kess admitted, she wanted Neelix back. Janeway wanted Tuvik back because I believe in, in that scene that she had together with Kess. Like Mark, she would be one step closer from never recovering from that despair she admitted to Kess that she fights off every day. So she, quote unquote, sacrificed Tuvik's. But in the end, she also sacrificed a part of her soul, right? In order to serve the needs of the many. That's the crew of Voyager, right? So that they would have the best possible chance of survival and getting back home. So to borrow a familiar meme of our fandom, she didn't do it the right way. She didn't do it the wrong way. She did it the Jane way. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Resolutions. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. Tuvix could probably even play board games by himself, if it came down to it, or ping pong. Really, isn't there anything Tuvix can't do? And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.